Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Ali, Vice President of Marketing at Grin, and we discuss how companies can be leveraging influencer marketing as a channel, why influencer marketing will have more longevity than interruptive advertising, and how to put science and numbers behind working with creators the same way you would with traditional digital marketing channels. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So tell me a little bit about your background. How did you first get into technology and marketing and all the cool stuff you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, so a lot like you, I graduated with a marketing degree, but with the hopes of going into journalism. But around the time that I graduated college, like the the industry was not doing so great. Print in particular was doing really poorly at the time. And so I had the opportunity to actually go work on the Hill in D.C. Uh, and do marketing for the Library of Congress, which was a really cool opportunity. It's like there's a really big rush to working somewhere that has so much history and so much legacy. Um, and it drives a lot of maybe like importance and significance behind even the most menial stuff that you're doing. Like I wasn't doing anything important, but if you're, if you have to edit commas somewhere, doing it at the library of Congress seems like a pretty good place to do it. So I started off my career there. And then around that time, like the 2011, 2012 time period, there was just a lot of volatility within the government. So that was right around the time that our government started shutting down at random intervals. Uh, Unfortunately, it became more commonplace as time went on, but you know, I decided that I needed to find something a little bit more stable and reliable. And who would have thought going from like the government to a tech startup would be a journey of stability. But uh, it really was for me. So a friend of mine um, had actually worked at a startup in Silicon Valley and was like, hey, we're hiring entry-level salespeople. Is this something that you're interested in? Initially, I said no, because in my head, I had such a misapprehension about a career in sales. To me at that time, from what I knew, which was so ignorant, I thought sales was like, you know, selling phone books or, you know, like selling knives door to door. And there's, those are legitimate sales careers as well. But I had no idea what a rich opportunity for career software sales and tech sales in particular presented. So um, I was definitely wrong on that one. But luckily, I took a leap of faith. Uh, started as an entry-level salesperson, sort of worked my way up through sales management, eventually took on more and more pieces of marketing. Because I think a big thing about SaaS and tech startups is that sales and marketing are really in close lockstep. And then over my career, was able to take on more and more of the marketing until I eventually dropped uh, the sales off completely. That experience of going from working in the government to working in tech gave me everything that I needed. Like It gave me the fast-paced rush of feeling like you were doing something really important. Like that feeling of, you know, like the work that I do here today during this like 10 hour workday actually matters. Um, And I I really liked that about working for the government. There was like a sense of importance and value behind what you were doing, but working in a tech startup is like that, but without all the red tape um, and, you know, with snacks in the kitchen, which is nice. So, (laughs) so yeah, that's sort of been the journey and I've been fortunate enough to, to work and lead teams at, six fast-paced venture-backed startups. So I think for better or for worse, I'm like a startup guy now. 
you know, I never thought I would say that when I was uh, when I was growing up, but I was first like starting out my career. But I think uh, that is who I am. So that's really cool. W- would you ever found a company? Yeah, I've thought about this before. I mean, I I think first in order to found a company, you just have to have a really good idea. And I can't say that I've had one yet. You know that uh, that I think is worth all the turmoil of being a founder. You know, I. Like, especially in my most recent roles, I've worked really closely with like the the company's founders and it is like a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think it takes a really like special kind of person. I don't know. I mean, as, as time goes on, it's something that I've thought about for sure, but I really, I, I love marketing so much and I love the mix of art and science that it brings into my day to day that I think it would be really hard to, to leave that behind and focus on some of the tasks that are really important for a founder like the business operations and the fundraising and stuff like that. So never say never, but I, I really enjoy being a marketing leader. Yeah, founders definitely typically hire someone to do marketing very early uh, to not do it themselves. Yeah. But I don't know, maybe you do the, do the reverse, hire, hire a fundraiser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never know, right? Oh, I was just going to say, I've learned working in startups to never say never because the unexpected happens all the time. It's part of like the constant chaos that in this universe we sort of live within. So, um, so yeah, I've learned better at this point to never say never. Absolutely. So how did you meet the team at Grin and join up and eventually, or did you join as VP marketing or you rise up in the ranks? Yeah. So, um, it's a funny story. So I, I, two companies ago, I worked for a startup called Yapo, um, that does, that started off doing customer reviews for e-commerce brands. And that's when I sort of fell in love with this direct-to-consumer ecosystem, this like modern brand commerce landscape. You know, I, I'm always someone who has been an early adopter. I've always loved shopping online. And I thought that that was just like a negative quality in my personality. I had no idea that it could actually be an asset in working for a company that's in the in the, the modern shopping space. So I worked for that company, Yapo, and I got to meet a lot of cool people at different companies um, you know, over the years, I got introduced to uh, the founders of a different startup called Octane AI. They do uh, me- uh, messaging software uh, and they do like a, a virtual quiz for e-commerce brands. And they have a really cool piece of technology. And I remember I was talking to them and they actually introduced me to the people at Grin. So ultimately, like our space is as much as e-commerce and direct to consumer and uh, e-com tech has grown I think it still is very much like a, a small community. And so I remember the the founder of that company, his name's Ben. He told me, he was like, hey, I know these guys at Grin. They're looking for a new VP of marketing. And because of COVID, they had recently gone remote. You know, I had settled in New York maybe like six, seven years prior to this and was like, you know, I'm not looking to leave. Like, I really like living here. Um, and so Grin used to be all local to Sacramento, but after the pandemic, they were fortunate enough to be able to like open up and get talent anywhere. And so it was just sort of the perfect storm of like, they were looking for someone who was remote. I was remote. Um, and it all sort of worked itself out from there. That's awesome. So, uh, can you give me the overview of what Grin does? So Grin is essentially, we're a creator management platform. So, you know, in the creator economy, we know that scaling direct creator partnerships is messy and that's a big problem that we endeavor to solve. So at our foundation, we're a system of record for scaling creator collaborations um, for any brand. And so the goal is really to help brands form authentic and genuine relationships with all types of creators. That's really cool. So influencer marketing, is that that the buzzword to use? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think influencer marketing is one way to look at it. We we do influencer marketing that is a part of our platform, but really within the creator economy, there are so many different types of creators. There's athletes, there's celebrities, there's influencers, there's affiliates and ambassadors, there's podcasters, um, and ultimately, modern brands are looking to do something a little bit different with each person. Um, and that goes way beyond social influencers. So Grin is really the all-in-one platform that helps brands develop relationships with all types of creators, including social influencers. So influencer marketing is is one part of that. People typically will think of influencer marketing as maybe a little bit more direct response, right? Like I will pay a creator, they will post something on their social on behalf of my brand, and as a result of that post, they'll get paid. Um, or they'll post a code or a link, and based on how many people use that code or link, they'll be paid. But ultimately, I think in the creator economy, the relationships between brands and creators are, are so much richer than that. There's so many more dimensions for opportunity. And Grin is really the only platform on the market that's able to capture all of that. Gotcha. So if it's not like reaching out and having them create specific content or share specific content, what do the engagements typically look like? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, like, it's gone so far beyond what we really thought of with the rise of the influencer, right? So, you know, I think back to like the birth of the social influencer. Uh, it was often driven by pop culture or by shows like The Bachelor and, you know, like Love Island, things like that. And you had this like group of people who essentially were being marketed in marketplaces. So, you had these very transactional marketplaces that were working with brands. And maybe peddling the same influencers to every brand, regardless of what the brand was really looking for. And all that that really did was it, it bred inauthentic endorsement. Ultimately, what we endeavor to do is to remove that transactional element from the process, right? And so our fundamental philosophy is that really the core of the relationship exists between the brand and the creator. And so the beauty of that is that it allows for all different types of relationships, right? So there are some brands who work with creators directly on strategy. They'll collaborate on product collections together. The founder of the brand will often work with creators on a texting basis, right? That's how close and deep these relationships can be. Um, And it's not always just about pay to post, right? Some brands will work with creators whose content they really like and figure out a way to integrate the content seamlessly into the creator's sort of lifestyle. Um, Sometimes, Uh, It's not even about posting. Sometimes brands really just need good content and they'll find creators whose aesthetic that they really admire and they'll work together to create content and the creator's not even posting it. It's content that'll be used on the brand's website or in their marketing materials. Then there's partnerships between brands on things like podcasts, right? That go so far beyond just like one social post where maybe a a podcast creator will, will, you know, work with a brand to integrate the content more seamlessly into the agenda for the show or into, you know, whatever it is that they're talking about. So there is like a lot more to it than just what you think of when you think of a a sponsored Instagram post, though, you know, of course, that's a big part of the influencer landscape as well. And Grin sort of covers that also. Cool. So in in working with creators and influencers, it sounds like a really relationship driven uh, marketplace. Um, how, how does that scale? Like uh, with other digital marketing strategies, you can just run more ads if you want to scale up your marketing or you can send more emails for your email marketing campaign. How can you scale up influencers when it's like tight knit relationships? Yes, that's a great question. And ultimately that is the problem that we solve here at Grin. Um, and when you think of, of the creator landscape, uh, and the influencer landscape, 
it really is a marketing channel that will never be deregulated and never grow out of style because at its foundation, it's word of mouth, right? So like from the the earliest days of marketing, I think back to like the 50s, right? And think of like Mary Kay. Um, I think of like the origins of QVC. The reason why like and the Home Shopping Network, the reason why channels like this worked is because the one way of marketing, which is through humans, will always be effective and will always be legal. And I think that's like what a lot of modern marketers are struggling with, right? Like it's so hard today to target people digitally. It's hard to target people via email. Consumers, especially after the pandemic, are more privacy conscious than ever. So it's really hard to find a good audience to target if you're a brand now at scale, right? Because people don't want you to be able to find them and target them and follow them around the internet necessarily anymore. And so working with creators who own their audiences authentically is the best way around that. So ultimately, like if you're a creator and whether you have a hundred followers or a million, it doesn't really matter. Those people started following you, not because of the endorsements you have or the brand deals that you have. They started following you because they like your content. They relate to you in some way. They enjoy interfacing with you online. And that relationship is one that can't be replicated through digital marketing in any other way. And so ultimately, if you're advertising a product, I'm more likely to trust you because I already trusted you before. I followed you. I opted into hearing about you and hearing your content, right? There's like a stronger degree of trust that we've built as a creator and an audience member that like just doesn't exist within traditional marketing channels. So to answer your question about scale, really, it's about making sure that you can find and recruit the best creators at scale, right? Really good creators don't just want to work with any brand. They want to work only with brands who they feel like they share an ethos with, they share a spirit with, who they feel you know are authentically kind of care about their audience. So it's about figuring out a way to, as a brand, to make yourself appealing to the best influencers. It's about reaching out to them at scale with personalization, right? Like no one wants to, to dig through their DMs and look at like tons of spam messages. It really is about figuring out a way to communicate with creators at scale in volume. Um, and then it's about being able to provide them with really clear guidelines and form a true partnership of like what both of you are looking for, for your audiences. And so ultimately Grin is the platform that facilitates that journey for any brand, right? We help you find the best creators. We'll help you communicate with them at scale. we help you develop really solid activations based on whatever your desired shared outcomes are as a creator and as a brand. And then we'll help, we help you trap content. We help you facilitate payments, even tax documentation in the U S. So really like, with a platform like Grin, you can take a, a channel that used to be somewhat manual, which is working with creators, and you can automate it the same way you do with other digital channels. Um, and the distinction and the special thing that sort of sets Grin apart is that really like working with creators is something that will always be allowed and it will always be in style and will always be effective because people, there have always been influencers and tastemakers, even if they weren't called that before, there have always been people who have these strong relationships with their audiences. And if as a brand, you're able to tap into that relationship, it'll always be effective. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, earlier this week, we had on a guy on the podcast called named Alexander Bard, who is a very eccentric philosopher that he also had, has had a successful music career and is a professor of economics and just overall, very interesting guy. But as a philosopher, he's written a bunch of books and studied for a long time the relationship between humans and technology. Um, and one thing that he was bringing up is that he expects 
at like traditional advertising as we know it to kind of end as AI and algorithms get better at their job at, at recommending things that people want to see because how can you if you have like a perfect algorithm that's recommending people things that people want to see how can you and how can you pay to inject something that's going to ha- grab people's attention more than that um, but when you're working with creators they're making the stuff that people want to see and it it seems like i mean just since that guys ideas are on my mind it seems like working with creators and influencers is kind if if he's right that's the only mode of marketing that will survive um so yeah all all you're saying is kind of falling in line with that yeah i mean that's a really interesting like theory i think the my my take is sort of that like we as consumers and we're all consumers right whether you consider yourself mm-hmm. like a consumer or not you are always consuming media we're always consuming social media in some form or another um even if we're not active on every network i think as consumers like we're not we don't actually dislike being advertised to right because ultimately you have to discover a new product some way what we don't like is when the advertisement feels inauthentic and I think that's like the the issue of authenticity is really like what is fundamental to our story at Grain and what we endeavor to help solve for the market. Like I think people are happy to discover new products, to discover, you know, like new brands, as long as it feels part of the content that they want to engage with regularly. And so, you know, we've all suffered through seeing the, you know, um, the the pregnant influencer advertising laxative tea. Right. We've all had that moment where we've stopped and been like, wait, this doesn't make sense. Right. Or like, oh, that seems weird. And, you know, we've all had that moment where we've seen the Academy Award winning actress in ads for the drugstore beauty brand. And like no one even believes that that person is wearing that brand of cosmetics in the commercial that you're watching. Right. And so if you can't figure out a way to advertise beyond those basic rationalizations that we as consumers all make, you're not going to truly reach your audience in a meaningful way. And so I think that's where like the the creator play is really smart because ultimately the audience that you're that found your creator found them before they were working with your brand and they will be with them long after that you're they're working with your brand. Right? It's ultimately like they own their audience. And so and they own their audience because they're providing content that is either engaging, educational, enriching, entertaining, whatever it may be, but they own their audience because they've been able to find a special relationship that has magnetized a certain group of people. And like, you can't take that away from them. And so ultimately I think what we see is that the best creators now don't want to work with brands they don't identify with, like no matter what the paycheck is, because it's not worth, you know, endangering their audience with an authentic endorsement. So really I think as a brand, you should focus on finding creators and building a roster of people who are genuine advocates of your brand, who genuinely love the product that you put out. Because if that's the case, the endorsement, you know, however you want to display it will be all the more authentic for their audience. And that'll be a true moment of connection for the brand, the creator and the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So earlier you, when you were talking about, when we were talking about uh, being entrepreneurial and you said like you love marketing uh, particularly for like the science involved with it and like digital marketing I, I is everyone's pretty aware that's a highly scientific endeavor uh, with run the statistics and uh, all the KPIs that you're running and 
keeping track of everything. But how do you apply those same like scientific principles to influencer marketing? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, like, look, there are some parts of influencer marketing that are just as scientific as traditional digital marketing, right? Like, so um, if you work with affiliates who use codes and links, you can directly track how many of those end up converting and you can, you know, fulfill a revenue number based on the number of people who click on the codes or links and purchase a product. So there are elements like that that are very turnkey. But like what I always try and tell people is you have to think of working with creators as more than just direct response, right? Because if you think of your own behavior as a consumer, how often is it that you see a product one time being advertised by one influencer and then you've decided to buy it? Usually like the, a, a great like creator mix or a great uh, marketing mix is built upon like diversity of strategy. And so when you think of things that go viral, think of like uh, not even a brand, but think of like the ice bucket challenge, right? If you just saw one random person on your timeline pouring a bucket of water on themselves, it wouldn't have like made a difference to you. But the fact that you were able to see your favorite celebrity doing it, the athlete that you grew up admiring doing it, your best friend from college doing it, your grandma doing it, the fact that all of these different people were engaging in the same thing, that's what drives true momentum in the marketplace. So when we advise brands on how they should build their creator mix, we advise them not to just think about it in terms of direct response. Like there are always going to be people who will click on one post or one link and buy a product and great, you've earned that business. But really it's about using creators to impact every part of your marketing mix. So from awareness to education uh, to conversion. And so, you know, when you think of the metrics that in working with creators um, impacts, it goes so far beyond direct response, right? It's the number of followers you have. It's the uh, depth of the relationships you have with people on social media. It's uh, the average order value. We've seen you know data that suggests that people who discover a brand through a creator that they trust are more likely to buy more products and quicker. It's more likely to decrease the time between the first and second purchase for a brand, right? Because if you if people you know have seen a creator work with a product and they've seen them hold it, play with it, showcase it a lot on their social, they have a better idea of what they're getting. And as a result, they'll be more likely to buy more products from the brand. They'll be less likely to return, right? They're more likely to engage with the brand on social because if they discovered your brand through a creator on social, it means that they're more likely to be a socially driven consumer who will then post on their own social media, who will leave a review, who will capture user-generated content for your brand, right? So all of these like halo effect metrics are impacted by working with creators. And so I think a modern brand has to kind of assess a creator's impact on all of these different metrics. So aside from like followers, what metrics do you use to evaluate the value of a creator before working with them? Like to, to ensure that like they're going to do a good job promoting the brand. Cause I'm sure there's lots of creators out there that are like, Oh, nice. I'll get some free stuff posted on my story. Cool. And I'm done. <laughs> like, um, how do you evaluate and like, make sure you're getting quality people on board. Yeah, great question. I mean, I think followers is one way to look at it. But again, I think in in, uh, in the modern brand's creator mix, you're working with creators of all different types, sizes, with different, different audience breakdowns. Um, and I think that's really important. So I, a lot of people are all about the followers. I think you really have to look a little bit beyond that because ultimately think of the relationship that you have with a creator like a Serena Williams who has 10 million followers, you probably have a slightly different level of relationship with a creator like that than maybe you have with a creator 
who you had discovered online, who has a very similar lifestyle to you, who has maybe a thousand followers, right? So I think it's all about diversifying and thinking beyond just the follower number. Um, the other thing to look at is the engagement rate of the creator. Like, are they engaging with their audience? Do they seem to like have really strong, authentic, deep relationships with the people who follow them? Um, are they creating content that's engaging for their audience? Uh, and then the last thing I would look at is to, to assess whether the content they're creating is going to work for you and your brand, right? Like not all creators are built equal and not all creators are a good fit for every brand. And so really, I think a smart modern brand finds those creators who already seem like they could be employees of your brand. You know what I mean? Like they live the same lifestyle. They live the same aesthetic. They like, you know, philosophically seem really aligned with what you're trying to accomplish as a brand. So if you're a sustainability focused brand, like really look for people who talk the talk and walk the walk on their social. And you're much more likely to find a good long-term partner. If you're a sustainability focused brand and you just pick out of random you know, someone who has 10 million followers without vetting the content that they produce, the relationship they have with their audience, what matters to them, what passion projects they care about, you're much more likely to create like an inauthentic endorsement that's not going to work for the creator and it's not going to work for your audience. Yeah, and I think a sustainability-focused brand in particular also would carry like risk working with um, someone that might behave in a way that uh, is not appreciated by the uh, sustainability brands audience. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like brand safety is huge. It's like a big concern in the creator economy. You know, like it's something that we focus a lot on within our platform is helping, you know, brands attain brand safety um, through a lot of the different tools that we offer. But I think like when you, when you think about the stakes for a brand in the creator economy, they're super high, right? Because it used to be like you could control the entire process of what people thought about your brand completely in-house, right? You control the website. You control the photo shoots. You hire each model specifically. You know exactly every single word that is leaving the warehouse, right? You pick the packaging. And you can still do all of that, but ultimately... Your, your product is going to be in the hands of people out there in the world. They're going to hashtag. They're going to tag you. They're going to tag the product on social. They're going to leave reviews. They're going to post their own photos with your product. And you have no control over that. So ultimately, as a brand, the stakes are really high. And that's why partnering with the right creators is super important. It's not a, like a thought that you can just do as an afterthought. It's not an endeavor that you can do in a rush. It's something that is super important and that you should invest like time, money, and resources into making sure that you have the right creator roster. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm actually, in this conversation, I'm thinking of, um, have you heard of the YouTuber Internet Historian? He's uh, very <laughs> not professional. He's like, he, he makes like, uh, he, he just makes like these like kind of super fried all over the place, like acid trip of videos about um, like, big events that happen on the internet um like uh if you remember the in 2019 area 51 raid um facebook event that went yeah, viral. yeah so he'll like cover silly stuff that happens like that and nord vpn sponsors this guy and you can tell he has complete creative control because the nord vpn ads on his videos are just wild and like I said, his videos are like acid trips of videos. Um, and as a result, like I, I, I think that's the way to do it, right? Yeah. I, I really enjoy <laughs> what 
Nike does with the NordVPN ad, which is not a brand that I'm particularly have any feelings about at all. You know, I, I don't even use a VPN personally. Um, but I mean, I yeah. now after after that, I like I, I respect them. I'm like, nice, good, <laughs> good, good on you trusting this guy and making a fun thing that I mean, if I get a VPN, I'd pr- it'd probably be that one after that. But and think about it, like the brands that have lived and have really survived and thrived in the social era are ones who have figured out that like a modern creator is so much more than just like a photo, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think of the brands like the Skims, the Warby Parkers, the Allbirds, Majuris, like they really integrate into the daily lives of these creators in the way that you're talking about. And that's so important because we as consumers look to creators for so much more than we used to, right? Maybe 10 years ago, creators were just photos, right? Static photos. And so that's when it became all about Photoshopping, you know, really a lot of control around the brand image. But now creator, we look to creators for so much more. Like I, I would say so much of my TikTok for you page is educational content, right? Or like I'm learning stuff about, you know, marketing trends or about history. We look to creators for comedy now, right? All stand-up comedians now, instead of getting their break on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, they're getting their break on social media. This is how we're discovering new musicians and artists, right? In order to be a successful athlete today, many people say that in order to drive a lot of traction and public awareness around you as an athlete, you either have to be in the top 1% of performers or you have to be a really good creator who has an engaged audience. So ultimately, like, the, the way that you think of a creator in 2022 is so different than we used to. And that means that they ha- there has to be an ad- adaptation in the type of content that they produce. So like the best brands will let creators kind of do their thing. You know, they'll give like some guidelines, they'll give some like rough, you know, uh, land posts of what they're looking for. But really they let the creator do what they do best, which is create engaging content, which is how they got the audience that you're after in the first place is because they created content that worked. And so by trying to like overly manufacture the type of content that a creator makes, I think you're missing out on what you're really seeking in that creator in the first place, which is the unique relationship with their audience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I I do want to get into a little bit of, um, uh, so obviously marketing strategies are super useful to like founders and people in charge of running their businesses. And like, that's why I was really excited to have you on for our audience. Cause we have a lot of founders that listen, but I also want to, um, talk a little bit to like the, the general it and tech people that we have listening. So throughout your career in marketing, how have you like interacted with the, like, what have your interactions been like with the it functions at your various businesses throughout your career and how do you think it and marketing can work better together yeah that's a great question i think you know i've been fortunate in my career i've always been in really lockstep with my partner on the it side and i think the reason why is because modern marketing particularly b2b marketing is all about technology right and it's all about innovation and like moving as fast as you possibly can so you know every day my team is trying new channels trying new softwares like figuring out ways to innovate faster than the competition. Like that's really the name of the game. And in order to be able to like innovate fast and drive results, you need to have a really strong partnership with IT because ultimately you want to make sure that you're building processes in the right way. You want to make sure that your, you know, data privacy and compliance is on lock. As a marketing leader, you really want to be able to let your team run free, try new things, experiment, innovate really quickly, 
iterate really quickly. And the best way to do that is to make sure that you have partnership and alignment on the IT side, because ultimately none of the 80 softwares we use every single day just to do the basics of B2B marketing, it's not possible to operate at peak efficiency unless you have buy-in from IT. So how do you craft the culture of your company? What are the culture items that are important to being able to move so quickly like that? I think, um, you know, you have to bake it into the DNA of your company. So one of our, you know, one of our values at Grin is move fast, take action. Um, And so, you know, our CEO, Brandon, always gives this example of, look, let's say anybody at the company has uh, a deadline looming, right? And it's a Thursday and they know that their boss is out of town. They won't be able to get in touch with them till Monday. His take is always like, I'd much rather you move forward with the information that you have right now, um, even if it could end up being a mistake, then be overly cautious and wait and lose that, you know, 72 hours. And so really like that's a lesson that we all throughout the company really embody and take to heart. I think moving fast is so much more than just making rash decisions. Like we, of course, use data. We inform our, you know, all of our major decision making with data. But I think moving fast is really like something that you have to practice every single day and, you know, be a little fearless, be willing to take risks. And you have to create a company culture that allows for that. You know, the other thing that I always tell my all of my teams is to reserve 10% of their time always for innovation. So when you're building like, you know, your calendar out of like what your big rocks are for the quarter, you know, what other projects you're working on, make sure that you reserve that 10% of the time for innovation, because ultimately it's really easy to get stuck in the rut of doing the same things in the same way, especially if they're working all right. And if they're successful, I think oftentimes the adage is if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I think ultimately that's really how you fall behind because if you're just maintaining, you're already behind in you know like the modern world of B2B marketing. So I encourage everybody on my team to, even if something is working fine, see if there's ways that we can innovate it, take a leap forward, do it faster, do it better, do it bigger. And ultimately like you have to really give people the freedom to reserve that time for innovation. So like take as many demos as you can of new softwares, like do research, like talk to peers at fellow companies like figure out a way to get that competitive edge of innovation because ultimately that's something that like no one can ever compete with us on. I like that a lot. I'm probably going to take that that 10% on innovation and and uh, apply it with my teams. We cuz we um in like podcast production world do uh, a lot of we we create a lot of templates and assets to use for all the shows we produce and about like quarterly or we actually don't have a decided sequence, but now you're making me think that I, I really want to have this uh, a lot more deliberate. Um, but go in and revamp all of our templates, even for the same shows. It may just make them look different, make them look new, make them look better than the competition um, in some way. If we and keeping a finger on the pulse of what other people are doing. Um, but I like I like how you're intentional about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a firm believer that like. If you hire great people, right, they will continue to evolve as the job goes. Like I think, I think I'm so much stronger as a marketing leader than I was when I started at Grin even a year ago. And so I think the, you know, if I'm if I'm working off of some legacy process that I developed 12 months ago, it's like I'm smarter now. I have more context now. I'm faster now. And so if I approach even the same document with the eyes that I have now, I hopefully will be able to bring something new and fresh to it. So I think like. 
it's good to automate a lot of parts of your process, right? So that you're not repeating the same things over and over. But to your point, like who goes back and looks at the templates, right? To make sure that they are still as up to date or as innovative as they could be, to make sure that nothing is missing, to make sure that like they're updated with today's context. I think making sure that your team has the time to do that is critical. Yeah, absolutely. So I have I have one more question for you because um, I always like asking uh, this one. So looking at your career, it looks like when you're at the Library of Congress, you're doing like individual contributor kind of work on the marketing team, like actually making stuff, correct? Mm-hmm. So um, when you first moved from individual contributor to management, which is a reason a lot of people listen to this podcast because they, they've been an engineer for a long time and now they're dealing with people. What's one thing that you wish you would have known or a piece of advice you would have given yourself first time stepping away from the hands-on roles? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think the advice that I would give is for a long time, like I think I held on to this idea that a leader has to be a certain way and has to operate in a certain way and like talk a certain way and like lead meetings a certain way. And I think the beauty to being successful as a leader is really leaning into the parts of you that are unique. And I think like that's what people want to work for, right? And that what that's what get gets people to actually relate to you. Um, like being vulnerable, being open, sharing a little bit of yourself with your team. I think that goes a long way. Beyond that, I think like when you are thinking about like the journey into leadership, it's really important to figure out a way to communicate with all different types of people. Because ultimately as a leader, it's your job to mold and adapt to all the different types of people who will be in your reporting line, right? And they, you can't make them conform and adapt to you. It's like on you as the leader to really adapt, shift your style, shift your communication strategy, shift the way that you speak, um, shift the way that you goal set with different types of people. And so really like when you're, you know, I operate under like a, a servant leadership mindset of like, I really do think that my number one way I can add a contribution to the business is by removing obstacles from my team's way and then letting them, you know, like run free and do what they do best. If you approach your job, not as controlling people or dictating what they do, but if you think of it more bottoms up as being the person who's there to catch whatever they can't handle um, and just remove obstacles from their way, I think you'll end up creating a team culture that is much more supportive, much more autonomous, uh, much more independent. And then it'll give you the freedom to be able to really like lean into the places where you need to. So when you're working with new people, how do you, do you have any tips for evaluating kind of who they are and how you need to mold yourself to best serve them? I think it's about having really honest, authentic, and, and maybe even vulnerable or uncomfortable conversations right at the beginning, right? Because it's easy to kind of like when you start a new working relationship with anyone, it's easy to kind of like go through the motions. Everybody's very polite with each other. You know, nobody wants to really like tell the truth. And it's easy to just get sucked into this model. And then before you know it, conflicts start popping up uh, because you never took the time to really establish a baseline with each other. So I always try and ask someone new who's reporting to me um, or even someone who I'm reporting to. I always try and ask, like, OK, like, what are what are the things that you that absolutely drive you crazy? What are your deal breakers? What are the things that, you know, may seem small but are really important to you? You know, what are the um, things that you you know, have trouble with that you're often maybe embarrassed to admit, or, you know, you find, uh, 
a little too vulnerable to admit. Like, how can I support you in times where you seem really stressed? How can I support you in times where you seem like you're on top of the world, right? And really like gaining a baseline for who they are as people uh, and how they operate in, in different modes. I think if you can have those honest conversations in the beginning, sure, n- nobody's going to spill their guts to you day one. That's like most, <laughs> most of us don't feel comfortable doing that. But if you yeah. lay that foundation as a manager that like, hey, I'm really interested in, in learning more about how you operate. I'm really interested in learning about how you feel about your emotions, about how you process different things. People will feel more comfortable bringing that to you later on. Whereas if you start the relationship with a, okay, let's go. Here's what we're going to do. Got it. Check. All right, let's move. You've never given that person time to like open up to you, to share things with you, to share vulnerabilities with you. And as a result, you're probably not being as supportive of them as you need to be. So yeah, I think, I think from my perspective, I try and lead with being vulnerable myself and like sharing, you know, the areas that I feel concerned about or areas, you know, where I think I want to improve um, or things that I know that I could handle better. Um, and I hope that the people on my team will sort of like take that cue and lead that way as well. That's amazing. Yeah. That just makes a lot of sense. I'm definitely going to be uh, implementing some of the stuff that you're, you're telling me about today. I mean, yeah, that's kind of say, I think the relationship with management has changed a lot too, right? Like, uh, it's now an employee's market. Like you can go wherever you want and, and no, I think really great people. And that's the goal always is to hire really great people, like have a million different places they could work every single day, right? They have so many options. And so ultimately I think people just want to be in a place that, that they feel psychological safety in. And so if you think of your job as a manager, not to like control their workflow or make sure that they're on task or make sure that they're getting X, Y, and Z done. If you just like hire good people and make sure that they feel psychologically safe at work, you will probably end up yielding the results that you need to be successful. That makes a lot of sense. And the the other thing that I would add that I'm learning a lot is um, just providing lots of good feedback as soon as you have it. As like as soon as you think of something that's like like oh I, th- this could be a little better, just shoot a message, just do it. Get get it out. Let make sure that they know what's going on, how they can improve, uh, because. Yeah, I, I noticed myself, one of uh, the th- things that I like work on for myself is I have a tendency to just kind of not say, not say anything. And that is not an option as a leader. <laughs> um, yeah. You definitely have to have to be better about that. And I think that that's a problem that a lot of um, like individual contributor types of people can have when they when they move up to management. Uh, and that's just like an improving your communication skills thing. Yeah. Someone told me once that as a leader, you have this big responsibility because you've become part of someone else's like dinner conversation, right? So when someone like goes home, goes home virtually, right? Like goes to a different room and is eating dinner with their family, you know, the way that you treated them that day and the interactions that you had are like, could be likely to come up. And if you don't take that responsibility seriously and you don't like, really invest in making sure that your employees are having a great experience working with you. And if you're just someone who's like my way or the highway, or like, this is how it's got to be all the time. I think that's what gets people to burn out and, you know, answer that one LinkedIn message from a recruiter, right. And possibly go somewhere else. It's like those moments. So I try and always just think of the privilege that all of us as leaders have, which is that we have the ability to really shape and guide the careers of other people and, uh, the, the directions of our companies. 
And like, it's about being humble and really remembering that responsibility every day is the first and foremost. Yep. Yeah. The old ways don't work anymore. No, my way or the highway for sure. But is there anything that you want to get out to the world that we didn't get to touch on yet so far in our conversation? No, I mean, I really enjoyed this. I think the only thing I would say is like, you know, as you're, as you're thinking about the year ahead um, and as you're, you know, like whoever you are listening to this podcast, as you're working on your marketing strategy or as you're working with your partner, who's working on the marketing strategy internally at your company, like really think about the, you know, the, what you want to focus on and like, if driving authentic relationships, uh, you know, with consumers is a big focus for you, I think like don't uh, don't undercount creator because working with creators is a great way to develop those relationships at scale. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.